0: That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W dot com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. This article is from The National, date 20th August 2021, from the Culture section. Looking back over 60 years since building of the Berlin Wall, by Martin Hannan. What's the story? It was in this month in 1961 that the Berlin Wall was erected splitting the city of Berlin in two. Today is the 60th anniversary of the completion of the first section of brick wall which proved that East Germany the German Democratic Republic was intent on making the wall permanent. August 20th 1961 also saw the start of the East German army shooting at people trying to escape to West Berlin. They missed but soon piled up the bodies. The weekend before, the GDR leadership under Walter Ulbricht had authorised the building of a barrier between East and West Berlin. The first such barrier was a miles long length of barbed wire but the intention was always to make a permanent barrier, a wall. The first section of Block was just five feet high, but within days the East German military had begun bringing in much larger concrete sections which construction workers erected at considerable speed. Houses along the line of the wall were bricked up to stop residents dropping from windows into West Berlin, and armed patrols largely stopped mass defections. It is hard to convey what a shocking event the erection of the wall was. It was a huge challenge to the Western Allies and all West Germany was incensed. East Germans rushed to try and escape, but only a relative few made it into West Berlin. The Cold War almost became very hot. What was the background to it going up? After the end of the Second World War Berlin was divided into four sectors, each of them controlled by one of the victorious allies, with the Soviet Union having the largest sector that was basically the eastern half of the city. The Soviets wanted more control however and blockaded routes into the city which led to the Berlin airlift that kept the city fed and supplied from June 1948 to May 1949. As the Cold War developed, East Germany, the GDR, and West Germany, the Federal Republic of Germany, came into being in 1949, both claiming Greater Berlin as the capital. The GDR was a socialist-communist state puppet of the USSR. West Germany was liberal and democratic, backed by the USA in particular. Defections by East Germans to West Germany were a daily occurrence and eventually some three million people fled the oppressive regime. Berlin was the main conduit for defections as it was relatively easy to pass from one side to the other. Ulbricht complained that the defections were bleeding East Germany of its best brains and Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev sanctioned the building of the wall. In June 1961, at a summit in Vienna, Khrushchev threatened to cut off access to West Berlin and President John F. Kennedy was unsettled by his tone. On July 25th, JFK went on television to tell the American people so long as the Communists insist they are preparing to end by themselves unilaterally our rights in West Berlin and our commitments to its people We must be prepared to defend those rights and those commitments. We will at times be ready to talk if talk will help. But we must also be ready to resist with force if force is used upon us. Either alone would fail. Together they can serve the cause of freedom and peace. Everyone knew the subtext of what Kennedy was saying stop access to West Berlin and it would be a shooting war. The world waited to see what would happen, but instead the wall was built. What did the West do? At first, nothing, except make the usual protests by diplomatic channels. JFK sent Vice President Lyndon Johnson to show solidarity with the West Germans notably then-Chancellor Konrad Adenauer and West-Berlin Mayor and future Chancellor Willy Brandt. Protests piled in from various governments, but Ulbricht maintained a rigid stance of refusing to negotiate. Khrushchev gambled that the Western powers, especially the USA, would not want to start a war over Berlin and he was right. It made him bold enough to start the Cuban Missile Crisis the following year, but that time Kennedy and the USA did stand up to him. Kennedy himself went to Berlin two years later and gave his Ich bin ein Berliner speech. What happened after the initial events? According to the official history of Berlin, as recorded on the mayor's website, in the years to come, The barriers were modified, reinforced and further expanded and the system of controls at the border were perfected. The wall running through the city centre, which separated East and West Berlin from one another, was 43.1 kilometres long. The border fortifications separating West Berlin from the rest of GDR were 111.9 kilometres long. More than 100,000 citizens of the GDR tried to escape across the inner German border or the Berlin Wall between 1961 and 1988. More than 600 of them were shot and killed by GDR border guards or died in other ways during their escape attempt. At least 140, some say many more, died at the Berlin Wall alone between 1961 and 1989. When did it collapse? The communist system was unable to sustain the Eastern Bloc countries and protests went from country to country against Soviet domination and misrule by their own corrupt authorities. In a bid to keep East Germans under control, GDR leader Erich Honecher allowed the populace the chance to go on holiday to Hungary and Czechoslovakia, but that only made the people more desperate for freedom. On November 9th, 1989, the East German government allowed free movement between East and West Berlin. The people promptly tore down the wall, the pivotal moment of the collapse of the Communist Eastern Bloc. That article was by Martin hannan. This article is from the Glasgow Times, date 20th August 2021, from the Opinion section. Alcohol dependence has become a serious issue by Dr. Punam Krishnan What is the image that pops into your head when you think of alcoholism? Well for many people alcohol dependence conjures up a profile from the more severe end of the spectrum of this illness I certainly remember studying about it at medical school often seeing it as a problem mainly affecting middle-aged men and mostly associated with poorer social backgrounds, drugs, violence, homelessness, to mention a few of the stereotypical profiles associated with alcoholism. Whilst some of these may be true, it does not represent all of those people who are struggling with alcohol dependence in 2021 especially as we review the impact of alcohol on people during the pandemic. This has become a serious problem and we need to tackle it head-on. Alcohol dependence is a disease and people suffering from this are in urgent need of compassion, understanding and support. No longer can we assume that it does not affect you directly, it's not your issue. Alcoholism is a societal problem And one that is increasing at a rapid pace. This week we learned that deaths directly related to alcohol have risen to their highest in Scotland in more than a decade. How worrying is this? Sadly I'm not surprised by this data as I have seen firsthand the number of patients who have presented with problems with alcohol over the last 18 months and they are far from the stereotypical profiles we are used to imagining. There were 1,190 alcohol-specific deaths last year in Scotland which is the highest number registered since 2008. And this is heartbreaking because these are deaths that could have been prevented. I have lost patients and I have even lost two close friends to alcohol-dependent syndrome. But had they been able to come forward and know that they would receive help and the support they needed, they would still be here today. We can do better. We must do better. Over the pandemic, we all experienced unprecedented stress. Whether it was the uncertainties, anxieties, isolation, job losses, financial strains, boredom, Everyone has had their share of challenges. Being forced to socialise virtually made it more and more acceptable for people to celebrate wine o'clock or gin time, often drinking at home alone. The TikTok trends, seeing mums portray the comedic homeschooling scenes armed with bottles of booze to see them through, we're starting to see the effects of this in our surgeries. What starts off in cases as an occasional drink can quickly, in the face of adversity, become a more frequent indulgence or coping mechanism. I have had patients using alcohol to help them sleep or to help with their mental health, whilst others have been managing their high levels of stress with alcohol but didn't see the problem as they have remained functional. Alcohol is creeping into people's everyday lives into normal behaviours and becoming a silent killer and the data is backing this up. In Scotland we've made some progress in times gone by but sadly any progress and interventions previously placed did not hold up to the challenges of the pandemic and the latest figures must be a wake-up call for urgent intervention. Proposals to further raise the minimum pricing per unit of alcohol or narrowing the price gap of alcohol in supermarkets to those in pubs are welcome suggestions, but they do not address the acute issue, the huge number of people currently in crisis. We need to do better in educating society about the way we view these struggling and raise awareness of the scale of the issue so early recognition of red flags takes place. Often people can struggle alone in silence and not seek support or help by which point it can be too late. Primary care services need to have more access to allied healthcare workers as a matter of priority to be able to refer patients for early intervention rather than having them waiting for months for reviews by secondary care services. I believe we have not yet seen the true extent of the fallout of the pandemic with regards to dependence and addiction issues. I can also say there are many people struggling but functioning with alcohol dependence and feel they cannot come forward for help, which worries me. So I write this in an attempt to evoke some reflection on how you interpret alcohol. What is your own relationship with it? Do you suspect it's an issue for someone you care for? Is it something you hold judgment for? Or do you view people with alcohol dependence as suffering from an illness in desperate need of help? How can we change the narrative and conversation to be more compassionate and supportive to those struggling? And lastly, for the government, what are you doing to help those people now? That article was by Dr. Poonam Krishnan. This article is from the Glasgow Times. Date 20th August 2021. From the Lifestyle section. Glasgow Battlefield restaurant owner Marco Giannassi flags new assault course created by Brexit and pandemic. By Ian McConnell. The owner of a landmark Glasgow restaurant has highlighted the new assault course created for his bistro by the coronavirus pandemic and Brexit, flagging import and general supply chain challenges as well as recruitment difficulties. Marco Gianassi, who owns the Battlefield Rest with his wife Yelena, flagged new challenges in importing food such as pasta, jam and honey from Italy. He also highlighted, in a general context, patchy supply of some products and delays to deliveries arising from driver shortages in an interview with our sister title, The Herald. Mr Giannassi said, You need to add all the things together, What's happened in the last two years. There's been a lot of changes in the world, especially in Europe. Brexit. Highlighting additional paperwork required for imports from the European Union because of Brexit, he added There is a new process for importing goods. We still buy directly from a local producer where I come from. Noting such orders normally arrived within a week to ten days, Mr Gianassi said this time it took nearly seven weeks. It was costly as well to put that in place. Commenting on more general supply issues affecting the restaurant sector and many others in the UK, Mr Gianasi said, There's patchy supply of some products at the moment. The suppliers don't seem to have stock or the deliveries get moved to different days because obviously there's an issue with driver shortage, so deliveries get delayed in general. It's a little bit uncomfortable at the moment to source things. The restaurant owner also flagged difficulties in finding tradesmen. He tweeted last week how extraordinary has been such a strong demand on all industries, sectors either on finding employees or tradesmen or simply spare parts or products. The pandemic and Brexit has created a new assault course for us to challenge. Mr Giannassi noted the impact of COVID-related self-isolation on driver shortages and, in the context of Brexit, added How many drivers were from other countries? That is a statistic we need to find out because that would be interesting to see. How many are here? How many have gone back since the pandemic? Revealing a decision to stop opening on Sundays, Mr Giannassi tweeted this week we have taken the difficult decision to return to being closed on a Sunday from 6th September. This is to help with the general well-being of our staff, also due to logistical difficulties in getting fresh produce. He noted Sundays had been busy but underlined current challenges. The battlefield rest has raised employee numbers from 18 to 20, including Mr Gianassi and his wife, and has tried to hire further staff. Mr Gianassi said, I decided it's better to have the same people going back to six days a week. At least it kind of relieves the pressure on all of them. Just for the sake of a busy day, are you going to jeopardise the rest of the team and their welfare? You don't want to overcrowd yourself and put a lot of pressure into their bodies and minds. We tried to source staff for over two months. That article was by Ian McConnell.
1: From the news section of The National, Friday the 20th of August 2021, ex-Scotland Office Minister Ian Duncan exposes how pointless department is by the National News Desk. A former UK Government Minister has shed light on the lack of purpose of the Scotland Office confirming how little it matters to the Prime Minister and revealing that controversy over his unelected status stemmed from a decision by Ruth Davidson. Lord Ian Duncan served as a junior minister at the Scotland office for two years but said there wasn't much to do. Duncan did not speak to Prime Ministers Theresa May or Boris Johnson even once while he was in the role. Baron Duncan of Springbank, who now serves as a deputy speaker in the House of Lords, has been a Minister for Climate Change and in the Northern Ireland office too. He was also a Tory MEP for Scotland for three years. Saying the Scotland office needed reform amid a total lack of purpose since devolution, he told Johnson he could not simply tell Scots to shut your pie hole. Speaking to the Institute for Government for its Minister's Reflect project, which is being released today, Lord Duncan said, I don't think the territorial offices work. If you think about how they were constructed post devolution that was not how they were intended to be. He said that the argument that the Scotland Secretary was supposed to be Scotland's voice in the Cabinet was concerning, explaining, I'd be troubled if all the rest of the Secretaries of State didn't get Scotland enough on their own, because if they don't, doesn't that make the SNP right? I don't ever want to have a situation in which I need the Secretary of State in a particular department to only understand Scotland because the Scottish Secretary tells them that. I don't mind there being a Secretary of State for Scotland, I'm just more troubled by the fact that the other departments themselves, broadly, would lay claim to paying attention to the Union. Up to a point, but not really. And that's a problem. I think the Scotland office probably needs to be reconfigured to be more effective. Duncan also pointed the finger at now Baroness of London Links, Ruth Davidson, over controversy when he was chosen for the role. The former MEP was picked by the then Scottish Tory leader to take up the ministerial post in 2017, despite there being 13 Scottish Tory MPs. He said, The Scottish Conservative Party went from one MP to 13, but again none of them became Under Secretary of State for Scotland. That was me, the unelected one. But even within the ranks of that group, I think there were certain eyebrows raised about why would it be that we don't have the experience to undertake this role, but he does, apparently? Duncan hit the headlines in 2019 when we revealed that he'd met with the Grand Master of the Grand Orange Lodge of Scotland ahead of a key Brexit vote at Westminster. He argued that prior to devolution, the UK government's Scottish office was a hub, a hive of activity, adding... By the time the devolution had reached its maturity that wasn't the case anymore. So, 75% of what had been the Scottish Office's core functions had simply been removed by the National News Desk from the news section of The National, Friday the 20th of August 2021. Ofcom announced date of ruling on complaint over Ruth Davidson interview by Greg Russell. One reader of The National who raised a complaint with the BBC and Ofcom over an interview with Baroness Ruth Davidson should find out by the end of the month what the outcome is. John Parker complained after a World at One programme in February ahead of the anticipated but postponed appearance of Alex Salmond before the committee investigating the Scottish Government's handling of harassment allegations against him. He said the story was given around 12 minutes of Top of the News airtime and Davidson was allowed more than a five-minute period to allege institutional corruption and an SNP cover-up, but no serious challenge against her. Parker, an Englishman by birth but long-time resident of Wales, told us in May he'd previously had some success with a complaint to the broadcaster when Lord Nigel Lawson was allowed to air climate denial points unchallenged. On the World of One... Davidson was interviewed after reports from the BBC Scotland's editor Sarah Smith and political correspondent Nick Eardley. She said there were questions to be asked about whether Scotland's democratic institutions were corrupt, which had featured in Eardley's report. Parker, who recorded and transcribed the entire programme segment, said that all in all a very one-sided and tendentious presentation seemed to be made with Holyrood elections just a few weeks away. In his original complaint, he said Davidson's claims were unsubstantiated and told the BBC you can't seriously claim to be covering this story properly or to have much interest in actually explaining it if she's the only person you interview. The BBC said it would be fair to suggest that presenter Sarah Montague was courteous in allowing Davidson to answer questions and they added there's no ulterior motive in either challenging or not challenging specific points on any occasion. His complaint was rebuffed at every level of the BBC, with some arguments he described as quite jaw-dropping. He then raised the matter with Ofcom, but told us in May he was frustrated they were taking so long to investigate it. However, yesterday a spokesperson for Ofcom told us that complaint is still under assessment. The results of this will be announced in a forthcoming broadcast bulletin. The next one's due to be published on August 31st after the bank holiday. Parker said he's now looking forward to seeing the response to his complaint, but said BBC news items had to be balanced immediately. He said, The only reason I can imagine for the complaint not being upheld would be that the BBC covered the issue elsewhere in a way that gave proper context. I'm not aware this did happen, but even if it did, I would still argue, since you can't guarantee the audience tuning in to subsequent coverage, balance should be achieved on the spot. By Greg Russell. From the news section of The National. Friday the 20th of August 2021. Scottish families urged to cash in on £250 grant for new school starters. By Jane Cassidy. Scotland's Minister for Social Security, Ben McPherson, is urging eligible families to apply for a one-off payment of £252.50. The Best Start Grant School Age Payment, administered by Social Security Scotland, is made to families when a child is old enough to start primary school. The payment can be used to buy everyday supplies like a new pair of shoes, books, school bags. More than £10 million has been paid in Best Start Grant School Age Payments to families across Scotland since the benefit launched in June 2019. Applications are currently open for children born between March the first, 2016, and February 28, 2017. Parents have until the end of February 2020 to apply. Macpherson said, "Whether it be a new pair of shoes or books or paints for an art project, the Scottish government's committed to providing extra help to give every child the best start in life." We know that covering the costs of starting school can be difficult, so I'm urging families who may be eligible to get in touch with Social Security Scotland to find out more. Even if you're deferring your child's start date until next year or homeschooling, please remember to apply before the closing date. We're keen to ensure parents and carers receive all the financial support they can apply for, such as a school clothing grant and free school meals. The grant is part of the package of five family payments administered by Social Security Scotland. The package includes Scottish Child Payment, Best Start Grant and Best Start Foods and is available to families receiving tax credits or certain benefits. Glasgow mum of three, Becky Taylor, successfully applied online for the payment ahead of her daughter Bella, aged four, starting Primary 1 at St Rock's Primary School in Royston this week. She said... I was able to buy her uniform, school bag and shoes as well as things like tights and socks. I was able to do the whole process online and it was easy. People should look into seeing if it's something they're entitled to and apply. You can visit mygov.scot or call 0800 182 22 22 22 to find out more. By Jane Cassidy.
2: From the National Monday, the 23rd of August 2021, from the sports section, Etap Loch Ness hailed as a success after 50k raised for charity by Craig Meakin, multimedia journalist. Organisers have hailed the success of the ATAP Loch Ness, which has raised more than £50,000 so far for Macmillan cancer support. The 66-mile cycle Sportive took place yesterday, around the iconic Loch Ness after being postponed three times from April 2020 due to the ongoing Covid pandemic. Some 4,300 cyclists signed up for the event with new course records set by the male and female leaders. Andy Cunningham from Leeds broke the male course record completing the course in 2 hours 42 minutes and 57 seconds while Catriona Locke from East Kilbride broke the female course record at two hours, 54 minutes and 59 seconds. Malcolm Sutherland, event director of Etap Loch Ness said, congratulations to everyone who took part in the Loch Ness in 2021. We have loved seeing people back in this beautiful course around Loch Ness doing something they love with fellow cycling enthusiasts. Not only has it brought people together for the first time in a long time, but it has raised important funds for charities Including over £50,000 so far for our official charity, Macmillan Cancer Support. Of course, Etap Loch Ness would not be possible without the support and dedication of our volunteers, partners, and sponsors. Thank you to each and every one of them. Paul Bush, Visit Scotland's Director of Events, said Scotland is a, is a perfect stage for events, and the Etap Loch Ness is always the highlight of the year for cyclists. And this one was even more special. Event Scotland was delighted to have supported this year's event. Well done to everyone involved, especially in ensuring the event was safe, and to all the participating cyclists. And that article was by Craig Meakin. From the National, Monday the 23rd of August 2021, from the Sports Section, Paralympics Channel 4, our presenters in Tokyo and where it's studio, by Sophie Parsons. During the Olympics earlier this summer many people were surprised to learn that the BBC studios were in fact in Manchester rather than Tokyo. Now with the Paralympics set to get underway the same question applies to the Channel 4 coverage. Where are the studios? Presenters, pundits and commentators do a stellar job of providing seamless transitions so much so that you would never guess they may not actually be where the action is taking place. Channel 4 has bases in Tokyo, Leeds and London. So with that in mind, here's where all the presenters are reporting from throughout the Paralympics. Are the Channel 4 presenters in Tokyo? In this case, it's not a one size fits all answer. The Channel 4 Paralympic presenters are spread between Tokyo, Leeds and London. Where the presenters are based very much depends on what show you're watching. For example, the highlight show fronted by Adi Adi Pitan is filmed in Tokyo, while reporters like Sophie Morgan, JJ Chambers, Ed Jackson, Lee McKenzie and Vic Hope are also located in Japan. From Leeds, Claire Balding will present the live sports finals, while Steph McGovern and Arthur Williams will front the Paralympics breakfast show from the same location. Meanwhile, London is home to the primetime show, The Last Leg, which offers a different take on the day's action with Josh Widdicombe, Adam Hills and Alex Brucker. Rosie Jones, who will act as a reporter on The Last Leg, will broadcast from Tokyo. Are the Channel 4 commentators in Tokyo or UK? Most of the commentary will take place from the studios in Ealing, London. It means that the commentators are in for lots of early starts, with action starting as early as 1am due to the 8-hour time difference between UK and Tokyo. It's a similar approach to that taken by the BBC for the Olympics earlier this summer, where most of the commentators were based in Salford. And that story was by Sophia Parsons. From the National, Monday the 23rd of August 2021, from the Sports Section, Angeball Ball has Celtic fans in thrall, but will it work against Rangers at Ibrox? By Matthew Lindsay, Chief Football Writer. There is much that Ange Postecoglou must achieve in the months ahead, if he is to vindicate his somewhat left-field appointment as Celtic manager this summer. The man who occupies the Parkhead dugout is expected to win every domestic competition that his team is involved in, not least the Sinch Premiership. And do well in Europe each season. Missing out on a place in the Europa League group stages on Thursday will be a bitter disappointment, not to mention a costly failure financially and will not go down well. It is to be hoped that Celtic, who are leading AZ Alkmaar 2-0 from the first leg, prevail over the Netherlands and progress for the good of the Scottish game. Yet possibly Coglu has, has Just a couple of months or so into his tenure, already enjoyed some significant successes. Lifting the mood around the east end of Glasgow, which was at rock bottom after the calamitous attempt to complete 10 in a row and a trophyless 2020 21 campaign. In a matter of weeks has been some going. Those supporters who staged angry protests outside the stadium, called for the manager and board to be sacked, got involved in ugly skirmishes with police, hurled missiles at players and attacks the team bus last term, have showered the Greek Australian and its charges with adulation and praise. The football Celtic have served up during their six-game winning run has been a delight to watch at times. They have scored 24 goals and could easily have netted more. New signings, Leo Abada, Kyogo Furuhashi, and Joe Hart have all contributed greatly to the resurgence. Meanwhile, Ryan Christie and Tom Rogic, who had lost their way, have been revitalised. And Anthony Ralston has grasped the chance he was only handed due to the lack of alternatives in the right back position, and then some. Possibly Koglu has shown he has an eye for a player in the transfer market, wants a sign to attack and entertain, and can inspire and improve those who work under him. It is little wonder that Celtic fans are currently counting the hours until the first old firm match of the season kicks off at Ibrox at noon on Sunday, even though none of them will, due to a standoff between the hierarchies at the City rivals over ticket allocations be in attendance. Rangers have been as unconvincing as their old age-old adversaries have been convincing in recent weeks. Individuals who were in men's last season as Stephen Gerrard's men rocked to their first top-plate fight top-flight title in 10 years by a 25-point margin, have disappointed. Leon Balogun, Borna Barisic, Conor Coulson, Ryan Kent and James Tavernier have all been far from their best. New arrival John Lundstrom has been poor. Ross County were beaten 4-2 up in Dingwall yesterday, but the showings in the home and away defeats to Malmo in the Champions League qualifying Premiership loss to Dundee United at Tannadice, and even the narrow Europa League playoff win over Alaska have concerned their followers and manager. Are the champions heading for a humiliating home defeat in the and Glasgow derby of the season? Is the balance of power in Scottish football going to shift quickly from Govan to Parkhead? A sense of perspective is required here. Celtic have played just once away during the current horrid form. They beat Jablonek, who finished third in the Czech First League last term, 4-2 earlier this month. Will Anjbal, as our new high-risk, expansive swashbuckling style has been dubbed, work against quality opposition and top-class strikers on the road? We'll find out this week when they play AZ and Rangers. Callum McGregor and his teammates have kept clean sheets against Dundee, Jablonek, Hearts EZ in St Mern in recent weeks. But the defence has looked shaky at times. Carl Starfeld has still to show why it took a £4.3 million fee to, dis- to secure his services. Hart has been required to come to the rescue on several occasions. Yablunek had three age scoring opportunities. EZ even more. And Hart's knitted twice in the second half. In that latter outing... Kogu felt his man had tired due to the high tempo they had, as instructed to play that. The new recruits will help Celtic maintain their intensity for the full 90 minutes. However, what sort of shape will Abada, Furuhashi, and Rogic be in at Sunday lunchtime after what promises to be a mentally and physically draining following excursion on Thursday night? Postalikoglu had been unconcerned by the issues at the back. He appreciates the new look rearguard as a work in progress. He also accepts that his tactics will leave his men exposed to it on occasion. He is the kind of coach who is quite happy for his side to concede a goal, just as long as they score two. But how will they fare in front of a hostile 45,000 strong crowd if Gerard, as he did in the 4-1 win at Ibox back in May, feels Alfredo Morelos and came on roof up front in a 4-3-1-2 formation? Celtic could quite easily try comfortably against the hosts who have toiled of late and have an energy-sapping continental fixture in Armenia to negotiate on Thursday themselves. But it will be interesting to see how effective Angebot is and what will be their biggest test to date. And that piece is by Matthew Lindsay.
1: From the news section of The National, Tuesday, the 24th of August, 2021. NHS Dental Care Becomes Free in Scotland for Those Aged Under 26 by Gregor Young Young people in Scotland under the age of 26 are now eligible for free NHS dental treatment. The free service will also cover those who started a longer NHS course of treatment before the 26th birthday. The free treatment is immediately available with no opt-in requirement. The change comes as the Scottish Government allocated a further £7.5 million in funding to support the dental sector. The Government said the funding will also help dental practices to purchase drills that do not create as much aerosol as standard drills and so allow dentists to help mitigate the impact of Covid restrictions on the number of patients they can see. Health Secretary Humza Youssef said the changes were just the first step on a journey to making dental treatments free to all in Scotland. He said we're committed to scrapping NHS dental charges for everyone in Scotland and removing them for anyone under the age of 26 is our first step on that journey. Today's announcement means around 600,000 young people aged under 26 will benefit. I want to thank the dental sector for its outstanding efforts over the last challenging period, he said. The Scottish Government said the free treatment exceeds the commitment made to remove the NHS patient charges for care experienced young people. It also cautioned, it's not yet business as usual and dental practices still need to prioritise people with urgent dental problems and those in most needed treatment. Unless your situation's urgent, it may be some time before your dental practice can see you. By Gregor Young. From the news section of The National, Tuesday the 24th of August 2021. Trial of former SNP MP Natalie McGarry delayed until spring by Laura Webster. The trial of former SNP MP Natalie McGarry has been pushed back to next spring. McGarry is accused of embezzling more than £25,000 from two pro-independence groups. She did not appear at the hearing at Glasgow Sheriff Court, but has previously entered not guilty pleas to the two embezzlement charges she faces. She was due to stand trial next month, but the trial has now been postponed till April 2022 to allow time for preparations. Alan McLeod, representing McGarry, told the court the defence is waiting for more information relating to a report. He said there's a defence motion to adjourn. The Commissioner indicates it will be October before he completes his task. The defence wishes it to be completed. The Crown described the delay as hugely frustrating. McGarry 39 is accused of appropriating £21,000 for her own use in her role as Treasurer of the Women for Independence Group between April 26, 2013 and November 30, 2015. She's accused of failing to transfer charitable donations raised by the group to Perth and Kinross Food Bank and to Positive Prisons Positive Futures. It's alleged the former SNP MP transferred funds raised through events on behalf of Women for Independence into her own personal bank account and used cheques drawn on the organisation's bank account to deposit money in her own accounts. McGarry's also accused of embezzling £4,661 for her own use from the Glasgow Regional Association of the SNP between April 9, 2014 and August 10, 2015. It's alleged that in the course of her roles as treasurer, secretary and convener of the association, she used cheques drawn on bank accounts held in its name to pay expenses it had not incurred and retained reimbursements to which she was not entitled. The indictment also alleges she used cheques drawn on bank accounts held in the association's name to deposit money in her own personal bank accounts and transferred funds donated to the association through its website into her own accounts. McGarry was elected an SNP member in 2015, but resigned the party whip after the emergence of the fraud allegations, which she denied. She continued in Parliament as an independent MP representing Glasgow East, but did not seek re election in 2017. By Laura Webster. From the news section of The National, Tuesday, the 24th of August, 2021. Daily Scottish Covid cases reach new record high by Laura Webster. Scotland has recorded 4,323 coronavirus cases in the past 24 hours, the highest number ever seen in a single day throughout the pandemic. Speaking at her Scottish Government COVID briefing this afternoon, Nicola Sturgeon said that there has also been 10 deaths among people who have tested positive for the virus in the past 28 days. This takes the death toll under the daily measure of people who first tested positive for the virus within the previous 28 days to 8,080 people who have died. Nicola Sturgeon told the Scottish Government coronavirus briefing the daily test positivity rate is 14.5%, up from almost 12.5% the previous day. 364 people are in hospital with recently confirmed COVID-19. That's up eight in the previous day. And 43 patients are in intensive care. That's up two. So far, 4,850,552 people have received the first dose of a COVID-19 vaccination and 3,587,145 have had their second. New cases in Scotland have more than doubled over the past week. It's one of the sharpest rises we've experienced, said Sturgeon, at any point during the pandemic. She carried on to say, we always knew cases were likely to rise as restrictions eased. So to some extent, what we're seeing now is not entirely unexpected. However, she added that even with the success of the vaccination scheme, the country cannot be totally relaxed. If this surge continues, she said, and if it accelerates, and if we start to see evidence of a substantial increase in serious illness, we cannot completely rule out having to reimpose restrictions. By Laura Webster.
3: Recorded from The National on the 24th of August 2021 from the Culture section The Popular Prince Who Died in a Mysterious Highland Tragedy by Martin Hannan. It was in this week in 1942 that a major tragedy struck the royal family and saddened many people in Britain and elsewhere. Despite the all-pervading atmosphere of death and destruction at the height of World War II, the death in an aircraft crash in Caithness of Prince George, the Duke of Kent, struck a terribly melancholic note, not least because he had been a hugely popular figure and, at 39, was the father of three young children by his wife, Princess Marina. Mystery still surrounds the circumstances of his death, and theories old and new are always problematic, because such records as were kept have either been lost or are sealed, probably permanently, as is the case with many documents about the royals. The known facts are simple and easily recounted. His Royal Highness Prince George Alexander Edmund, Duke of Kent, was killed when the RAF Short Sutherland prying boat in which he was travelling to Iceland veered off course and crashed at full speed into a hillside at Eagle's Rock near Dumbith in Caithness on August 25, 1942. A total of 14 people were killed, with only one survivor who sustained dreadful burns. The Duke became the first royal to die on active service since King James IV of Scotland was killed during the Battle of Flodden in 1513. The aircraft was from 228 Squadron based at RAF Oban. The experienced crew had been assigned to transport the Prince to RAF Reykjavik on Iceland for what would have been one of his many regular morale-boosting visits to RAF personnel. The short Sutherland flew to the seaplane base at RAF Invergordon, on the Crematory Com- Firth and refuelled before taking off in foggy weather just after 1pm on Sunday, August 25th. Less than half an hour later, the Sunderland departed from its planned route and crashed into the Eagle's Rock hillside, bursting into flames as its nearly full fuel tanks exploded. Among the dead were the Prince's private secretary, Lieutenant John Leather, RNVR, the grandson of the first Viscount Ellswater, the pilot... Full FL Lieutenant Frank Goyen and all the crew perished except for Sergeant Andrew Jack, the wireless operator and rear gunner, who was hospitalised with burns. Rescue crews dashed to the scene but there was nothing they could do for anybody except Sergeant Jack who had made his way to a nearby Croft. Also there were police and special branch. The area was sealed off and investigation began, while local people in the press were warned to stay away. A board of inquiry was convened and quickly concluded that pilot error was the cause of the accident. Prime Minister Winston Churchill paid a generous tribute in the House of Commons to the brother of King George VI, who was also the favourite uncle of our current monarch. The loss of this gallant and handsome prince in in the prime of his life has been a shock and a sorrow to the people of the British Empire, standing out lamentably, even in these darkly hard days of war, to His Majesty the King, it is a loss of a dearly-loved brother, and it has affected him most poignantly. I know the late Duke of Kent from his childhood and had many opportunities of meeting him during the war, both at the Admiralty and thereafter. His overpowering desire was to render useful service to his king and country in this period when we were all of us on trial. The Duke of Kent was ready to waive his rank to put aside all ceremony and to undergo any amount of discomfort and danger, or, what is harder still, monotonous routine, conscientiously performed, in order to feel quite sure that he was making a real contribution to our national struggle for life and honour. The field he made his own was that of welfare and comfort of the Royal Air Force, which entailed an immense amount of work and travelling, and yet yielded a continuous and useful result, to which the personal qualities of the Duke contributed markedly. Prince George was no ordinary royal. He had a deserved reputation as a playboy, and was rumoured to have had affairs with everyone from Noel Coward to Jesse Matthews. He had dabbled in hard drugs, but he'd also been considered as a suitable replacement for King Edward III, the third the eighth at the abdiction crisis, though it was his elder brother Bertie who took the throne despite his nerves and stammer. George had no such problems and appears to have been a genuinely charismatic figure who had persevered in the Navy, despite suffering seasickness, before transferring to the RAF. On the outbreak of war, he was asked to become an Air Commodore and have a public role as the face of the Air Force. As arguably the most high-profile figure to die in Scotland during the war, a veritable blitz of media interest should have taken place, but the government used its wartime powers to stop all inquiries other than the official one. The return of his body by train to London was shown on newsreel and the reports of people crying in cinemas as they watched. There had been other reports and rumours about George. Did he share the pro-Nazi sentiments of his brother, the Duke of Windsor? Was he really friendly with Joachim von Ribbentrop, the German ambassador in London? He and his family were living in Rosyth when he switched to the RAF at the start of the war. He was certainly often in the company of, of the Duke of Hamilton, so he could have been the real target of Nazi deputy Fuhrer Rudolf Hess on his flight to Scotland. In recent years, there have been revelations that the Duke of himself might have been flying the aircraft and that a woman, presumably his lover, had been on board. We'll never know for certain. That article was by Martin Hannan.
1: From the news section of the National, Wednesday, the 25th of August, 2021. Cairngorm Funicular to stay closed till autumn 2022, despite £20 million cash pledge by Xander Richards. The famous funicular railway in Scotland's Cairngorms National Park will remain closed over the winter, despite a pledge of £20 million of public cash to get it open. While the work to strengthen the 1.9km viaduct that supports the railway track has been scheduled to finish early in 2022, It's now been rescheduled and pushed back to the second half of next year. The news was announced by the Highlands and Islands Enterprise on Wednesday afternoon. HIE said the decision had been made despite strong progress made in tough conditions on the renovations to date. The organisation also said that several factors had combined to delay the project. These include technical challenges associated with designing and implementing effective solutions to an existing structure. In addition, progress has been hampered by COVID impacts and by extreme weather, particularly blizzard conditions in spring. HIE also said extra effort has been required to source construction materials as a result of shortages currently affecting the UK. HIE Interim Chief Executive Carol Buxton said this combination of challenges had made rescheduling the works inevitable. She said Cairngorm Mountain states a great visitor attraction that plays an important role in the local economy and the funicular has been a key element of what draws people to Cairngorm. And it will be again, she said, once those works are completed. With limited time available to complete the works before winter, postponement has become inevitable. The funicular opened in 2001 but was taken out of service in 2018 after an engineer's inspection identified structural defects that raised safety concerns. More detailed inspection and design work followed before the decision to reinstate the funicular was announced last October by the Scottish Government as part of a £20.5 million business case that includes other priority investments to strengthen Cairngorm Mountains' year-round appeal. Business case assessed alternatives to reinstatement before reaching its conclusions, including removing the structure and replacing it with alternative uplift. Bucks then added that clearly a longer timescale will have a financial impact. We'll be reviewing costs very carefully and will publicly confirm a revised budget as soon as it's possible to do so. By Xander Richards. From the new section of the National. Wednesday, the 25th of August, 2021. The Harry Potter Cafe in Edinburgh, damaged in George IV Bridge fire by Laura Webster. Firefighters are still at the scene of a blaze which caused damage to the cafe where J.K. Rowling wrote part of the Harry Potter series. The Scottish Fire and Rescue Service, the SFRS, was called to a blaze affecting several properties at George IV Bridge in Edinburgh at 6.18am yesterday firefighter was taken to hospital for precautionary checks but released later that morning while one other person was treated at the scene. Images from the area early yesterday showed smoke pouring from a branch of Patisserie Valerie next door to the Elephant House Cafe which was made famous as the place where Rowling created some of her stories. SFRS said four fire engines and a height appliance remained at the scene at lunchtime on Wednesday. A man thought to be the owner of the Elephant House was seen carrying an elephant sculpture and a framed text out of the cafe today. Some road closures were still in place in the area and Elephant House owner David Taylor told the BBC his building had suffered smoke and water damage though the fire had not spread to it. He told the broadcaster, I feel absolutely gutted about this. I best we can hope for opening in a few weeks' time. But if there's structural damage too, then it isn't bearable to think about. It's really quite disturbing because you have just got to go back to some semblance of normality after two years. Although we were only running at about 50% of our festival trade. Police in Edinburgh tweeted, Due to a fire, George IV Bridge and Candlemaker Row will remain closed for the foreseeable. Please avoid the area meantime. Emergency services remain in attendance. An SFRS spokeswoman said, we were alerted at 6:18 a.m. on Tuesday, August 24th, to reports of a building on fire at George IV Bridge, Edinburgh. A total of 12 appliances and two height vehicles were mobilised to the area, where more than 60 firefighters worked to tackle the fire, which affected a number of properties. Four appliances and one height vehicle currently remain at the scene. By Laura Webster, from the news section of the National, Wednesday, the 25th of August, 2021. COVID in Scotland. More cases recorded than at any time before. By Laura Webster. Scotland has recorded more than 5,000 coronavirus cases for the first time since the pandemic started, according to Scottish Government data. It comes after Scotland recorded a new record high of 4,323 coronavirus cases yesterday, The percentage of tests returned positive in the last 24 hours was 11%. Five further deaths have been reported among those who tested positive for the virus over the past 28 days. That's five fewer than yesterday. The total death toll according to the measure used by the Scottish Government therefore stands at 8,085. The daily statistics differ from weekly national records of Scotland figures released earlier today as those include all deaths where coronavirus is mentioned on the death certificate. That's at 10,505 as of Sunday. A total of 391 people were in hospital on Tuesday with recently confirmed COVID-19. That's up by 27 on the previous day, with 44 patients in intensive care, up by one. So far, 4,088,894 people have received the first dose of the COVID-19 vaccination and 3,603,429 have had their second. The First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, commented on the increase on Twitter. She said another sharp rise in the number of cases today. Vaccines still protecting against serious illness, but we all need to take care and act in a way that minimises risk of getting or spreading the virus. She people to get their vaccine, wear face coverings, keep to hygiene measures, stay a safe distance away from others, stay outdoors if possible, and ventilate places. By Laura Webster.
3: Recorded from The National on the 25th of August 2021. From the Culture section. UB40 songwriter and sax player Brian Travers dies at the age of 62. By Angus Corrine. UB40 songwriter and sax player and songwriter... Brian Travers has died at the age of 62, the band has announced. The musician, a founding member of the reggae band, died at his home in Moseley, surrounded by his family on August 22nd. A statement from the band to the PA news agency said, It is with great sadness we announce the passing of our comrade, brother, founding UB40 member, and musical legend, Brian David Travers. Brian passed away yesterday evening after a long and heroic battle with cancer. Our thoughts are with Brian's wife Leslie, his daughter Lisa and son Jamie. We are all devastated by this news and ask that you respect the family's need for privacy at this time. Travers formed the band in 1978 with his bandmates from various schools across Birmingham, choosing their name as a reference to a form issued to people claiming unemployment benefits at the time. The band produced hits including Red Red Wine and Falling in Love With You and has sold 100 million albums worldwide. They have scored more than 40 Top 40 songs in the UK and are recognised as one of the UK's most successful bands. Travers' last performance with the band was at a concert in December 2019 held at the Arena Birmingham. The band lineup remained the same for nearly three decades until January 2008 when Ali Campbell departed. In June this year, UB40 frontman Duncan Campbell announced his retirement from music due to ill health. And was replaced by Kiko musician Matt Doyle as the band's lead singer. Doyle joined the most recent lineup of Robin Campbell, Jimmy Brown, Earl Faulkner, Norman Hassan, Lawrence Parry, Tony Mullings, Martin Meredith, and Travers. That article was by Angus Corrine.
1: From the news section of The National, Thursday, the 26th of August 2021, Canada and Denmark added to green travel list. ...by National News Desk. Canada and Denmark are to be added to the green traffic light list... ...for international travel, the Scottish Government announced. Thailand and Montenegro will be added to the red list. Leisure travel to these countries is banned... ...and anyone entering Scotland from either... ...will be required to spend 10 days in a quarantine hotel. Other countries moving from amber to green are the Azores... ...Finland, Liechtenstein, Lithuania and Switzerland... Fully vaccinated people coming back from amber and greenless countries are not required to isolate on their return. All the countries involved are on the amber list and the changes come into force at 4am on Monday. The government said the changes were agreed following scientific analysis of the latest data. Transport Secretary Michael Matheson commented, The latest changes are welcome for Scots with loved ones in Canada, but once again show that international travel remains challenging. Any relaxations to travel restrictions have only been made possible due to the huge success of the Scottish Government's domestic vaccination programme. It's vitally important we protect that progress through continued vigilance on importation and we continue to urge caution given the risk caused by the variants of concern. By the National News Desk.
3: Recorded from The National on the 26th of August 2021 from the Culture Section Surreal, independent Scottish sitcom launches first series on Amazon Prime, by Xander Richards. An independently produced sitcom about young people trying to make it in Scotland's biggest city has been picked up by Amazon Prime. Weegees, the culmination of seven years of work for its creators, premiered on August 16th, and the response has been really humbling, according to co-writer and star Stephen Arthur. Arthur, who plays Steve in the show, told The National it was surreal to see their hard work on such a huge platform. To actually have it out there and for people to react positively, it's just, just surreal is the one word I would probably say. But also extremely, just extremely proud and the reaction we've got has been really humbling. It's amazing to finally have it out there because we've had a lot of support from friends and family over the course of these years. So to actually have it in a place where they can just go and search it and have the thrill of seeing on their downstairs telly, it's something else. Set in Glasgow, its creators say the show is focused on characters, relationships and patter. The show celebrates what it is to be a young person living in Scotland and does not revolve around any stereotypes, but proudly represents the multicultural, friendly and inclusive nature of a wonderful city, they said in a release. The concept first saw the light of day in 2014, when Arthur and childhood friend George Charles Stewart approached independent filmmaker Graham Watt of Eight Acre Films. Together they scripted and filmed Weegees, the pilot episode, which premiered in June of that year to a sold-out audience in Glasgow's O2 ABC venue. However, that pilot is now locked away never to see the light of day, Arthur says, with the new series representing a complete reimagining of the concept. Weegees, which is available to few in Amazon Prime, was co-written with Matthew Joseph Campbell. It has already been getting a fair amount of attention. Arthur told The National... The past week, since the series release, has been one of the most exhilarating but scary weeks of my life. I was getting notifications constantly. I'm only used to getting about six every two weeks, but I was getting new notifications every five seconds. It's just been crazy. Asked how they'd managed to get it on the, to the Amazon platform, Arthur said, We literally just chanced it, pretty much the same way we have for the past seven years. We chanced it and hoped to God that they would take it. There was no guarantees, there was no nothing just a massive amount of work behind the scenes that was spread across our crew. Our director, Graham Watts, got a lot to do with it as well. Despite a demand from viewers, though, a second series might not be on the way unless financial aid is also forthcoming. Arthur said, the scripts are there, the characters are there, but we did this independently with a lot of money from our own pockets, so I would hope to make a second series, but we'll definitely need help this time around. But the story is definitely there, we've got it in mind. Weegee's is available to watch on Amazon Prime here and the trailer for the first series can be viewed above. That article was by Xander Richards.
1: From the news section of The National, Thursday the 26th of August 2021. A third of all Highland schools hit by Covid outbreaks by Richard Mason. A third of all schools in the Highlands have been impacted by coronavirus, the Highland Council has said. High schools including Grant Town, Kingusi, Culloden and Fort williams Lochaber, have a significant number of year groups self-isolating. Partial closures have affected Aviemore Primary and Thurso's Pennyland, while a one-day closure has been announced for Alvey Primary near Kingusi, while others are also being affected by outbreaks. The region has seen an exponential increase in cases of COVID-19, according to the Council. Around 60 schools in the NHS Highland region, which also covers some in the Argyll and Butte area, have been affected by outbreaks so far. There are a total of 203 schools in the Highland region. Highland Council said that online learning or home learning material was available for pupils who were isolating, but otherwise remained well. Chairman of the Highland Council's Education Committee, John Findlayson said the exponential increase in cases, while to be expected due to the recent relaxation of measures, is having a significant impact on our education settings. He said he understood that a high proportion, 81%, of over 16-year-olds in the Highlands are now vaccinated, and he said it's excellent news and will hopefully lessen any impact of the virus in time. He urged communities to remain vigilant and to take necessary precautions, to do what they can to slow the spread of the virus. NHS Highland said there had been more than a 1,000 new cases in the health board over the past week. It represented almost 10% of NHS Highlands' total cases since the start of the pandemic, with numbers expected to continue increasing. Marie Todd, Minister for Public Health, Women's Health and Sport and MSP for Keith Ness, Sutherland and Ross, Said COVID in schools was not unexpected given an increase in cases in communities. She urged anyone who suspected they had COVID symptoms to get a PCR test. By Richard Mason.
0: And that was this week's The National Podcast. Normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre. Currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.